growing in God's Word, and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. It is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God if you are not a child of God, if you've not been born again of the blood of Jesus Christ. Hail and fire mixed with blood and a third of the earth burnt up and a great fiery mountain thrown into the sea. A third of the sea life is destroyed, a third of the rivers of the world poisoned, the sun and the moon darkened, and a third of the stars go out. If you or the culture around us says, that doesn't look like the God that I want to know, then I would remind you that it's your idea of God that needs to change, not God. This week, we're in chapter 8 of the book of Revelation. Whoa, 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 because of all that's happened to them with these first judgments that are being poured out? No. Woe, woe, woe for what's about to happen. Woe, woe, woe for the three angels that haven't even blown their trumpets yet. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. It's a terrifying scene as we enter into the second set of judgments in the book of Revelation, the trumpet judgments. Why increase the judgments in time? Why not just get it all over at one time? Just Because it gives people time to respond. The events that will take place in the opening of the seal judgments during the tribulation period will have a devastating effect on this world. But as Pastor Clay shows us, today's judgments will increase in their intensity as the time of the end draws nearer. What will all this mean for the people on earth? What are God's reasons for these particular judgments? Those are a couple of the questions we'll be exploring today as we continue our year-long study of the book of Revelation. Thanks for joining us. We have been uh, walking through the book of Revelation in 2010, this series entitled uh, The Revelation, and today we come to Revelation chapter 8. Now, uh, just to kind of review with you folks, and I know I've said this to you before, but I want to remind you of this uh, one more time. Well, I shouldn't say that. For all I know, I could say it again, but um, at least at this point to remind you again that we're, we're walking through this section of the book of Revelation that deals with the judgments. God's judgment on this world as a result of the sinfulness and, and the disobedience and the rebellion to God that has, that has uh, come on the earth uh, and uh, up to this point. Those judgments are uh, expressed in three ways. There are three sets of judgments that will come upon the earth. And they are revealed in Scripture as seven seals seven trumpets, and seven bowls or vials. You may sometimes find some translations that say a, a vial instead of a bowl, but it's, uh, it's the same idea. So uh, the, we've been walking through the seven seals, the first set of judgments that come upon the earth. And one of the things that, uh, that if you haven't noticed yet, that you, you will begin to notice if you haven't already, is that the judgments are increasing in their intensity. They're increasing in their severity. In the first five seal judgments, as, as each seal was open, we discussed what a seal was, and most of you are probably aware of that. Of that. Uh, but the first five seal judgment, we, what we saw was basically what man will do to man during that time. Uh, war and, and famine and, and disease and, and the death of hundreds of millions of people, if I understand Scripture right, the death of hundreds of millions of people within the first year and a half to two years. Uh, so, so the early stages, really, 
of the tribulation period, which you remember is a period of time that lasts for how long? Seven years, seven literal years. So within that first five seals, we see what's happening. The sixth seal is open, and we begin to see God's direct intervention, God's direct hand of, of judgment upon the earth. As, as we, and we read that, if you're with us. By the way, if you ever want to catch up, uh, you can go online. You can go to our, our website and click on media or on current series, and you can go catch up and, and uh, listen to any of the messages that you haven't seen. But the sixth seal, we already saw that, that God's direct hand moves on the earth with, with earthquakes and violence, shaking of the earth and volcanic eruptions, what, what sounds like uh, volcanic eruptions, and really just pure cataclysmic events that come upon the earth during the sixth seal. When we came to chapter 7, we learned that there is a brief interlude between the opening of the sixth seal and the opening of the seventh seal. Now, how long that means, nobody's sure exactly, but apparently it's not that long a time, but there's some type of brief interlude. In that interlude, we were introduced to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are going to go all over the earth. You may, if you were here, you remember us talking about that. These 144,000, I describe them as Jewish Billy Grahams that will go all over the earth spreading the message of Jesus Christ to any and all who will listen. As a result of their work, these evangelists who are sealed, have God's seal placed upon them and and are unable to be harmed during that period of time, Uh, as a result of their work, we see at the end of chapter 7 this glorious scene where millions upon millions upon millions of people are gathered around the throne of God, worshiping God, worshiping the Lamb, as a result of the work of those evangelists, those who have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. It is a glorious and fantastic scene. Then we come to Revelation chapter 8 and this seventh seal. Let's read Revelation chapter 8 together this morning. The text is up on the screen um, if you don't have a Bible with you today. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer... And filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Verse 6. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees was burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. 
The name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. And then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, this is uh, an intense, uh, particularly intense, it seems to me, uh, passage of Scripture in the book of Revelation. Uh, these judgments are harsh and severe, and they are a reality of the events that are going to transpire in your timing, uh, Father God. And you wrote these words 2,000 years ago, and so it has had application for each generation, not just the generation that will experience these things. So help uh, each one of us in this room this morning and those that may listen to our broadcast, help them, uh, Lord God, to take the truth of your word here in Revelation chapter 8 and make application for our lives. And what does it mean as far as urgency? What does it mean as far as holiness? What does it mean as far as the expectations that you have for our lives? And most importantly, what does it mean for me in my relationship with you, Lord God, even as my brother BJ has prayed this morning? If there's someone here who as of yet has not experienced the amazing grace of God, may this be the day in which they do. Teach us, uh, Father, uh, from the truth of your word. Help us to make application again for our lives. And may we leave here uh, being able to say uh, it is good to go into the house of the Lord, to worship him and to listen to him as he speaks through his word. Uh, as I say often, Father, truly I am honored to be your messenger boy. May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God, my rock, and my redeemer. Today, as we, as we partake of this Lord's Supper, may we do so in a full reminder that it represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed for us. It is not trivial. It is not to be partaken of lightly by those who who have not yet committed their lives to you or, or by those who perhaps are, are, are living in sin. Father God, if any of us are in that state, help us to be mindful that this represents the holy, pure, righteous body and blood of Jesus Christ shed on our behalf. It is an honor to gather around the table and to acknowledge by partaking in this that you are our Lord and our Savior. This bread which represents your body broken, nailed to a cross for us. This fruit of the vine represents your blood, which was shed on behalf of all those who would give their life to you. And so uh, what we do here today, we, we do not do flippantly, casually, but somberly, but also in a spirit of, of gratitude and, and even celebration for the lamb that was slain has made it possible for us to have eternal life. It's in His name that we pray today. Amen. Revelation chapter 8. Pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? A lot of stuff going on in there. Let's see if we can uh, begin to break it down and, and look at it this morning and make application for our lives. 
Let's just remind again, as as again to break it down, it says in verse 1, it says, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I have no reason to uh, presume that this means anything other than what is literally written there. That it actually refers to a half an hour of time in heaven. Now, some people would say, well, that seems kind of odd. I mean, why half an hour? You know, I mean, maybe that's symbolic because half an hour doesn't seem like very long a period of time. But imagine with me if you were in court and um, a judge at the conclusion of the, of the trial, the judge were to say to a, a jury, to the, the jury there, he says, have you, have you reached a verdict, right? We've all maybe seen that in court or or watched on Perry Mason or something like that? Have you, have you reached a, a verdict? And the four-person responds, uh, yes, Your Honor, we have. And the, ju- the judge says, how do you find? And the four-person says, we, the jury, find the defendant. Imagine a pause of five seconds, ten seconds. A minute would be excruciating. Thirty minutes would, would be an eternity. We, the... We, the jury, find the defendant. I think half an hour of silence in heaven will feel like an eternity. As Jess Henley uh, says in his study of the book of Revelation, uh, 30 minutes in heaven, silence for 30 minutes in heaven will seem like an eternity because, as, as Henley says, heaven is a noisy place. Now, not noisy in a negative sense, but as we've already seen, as we've seen, as we've gathered around the throne several times, and we've seen this this gathering of people that's growing around the throne, uh, that there that there is that there is worship and praise and joy and shouting and singing and and all of these things going on in heaven and so forth. To suddenly fall silent for thirty minutes of silence would have to seem like an eternity. But it begins to speak and it begins to show us that clearly God's judgment is, is making a transition. And, and as I said before, it's, it's growing in its intensity. It's getting worse and it's going to get a lot worse. And so there's 30 minutes that it's silent in heaven as the seventh seal is open. And then in verse 2 it says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, uh, we don't really know who these seven angels particularly are. Obviously, they've been given a position of, of honor, um, a position of, of responsibility. It's quite possible that one, at least one of them, we may know who it is, it's possible that one of them is the angel Gabriel because Gabriel, interestingly enough, introduces himself that way uh, to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 and verse 19 when he goes to Zechariah and tells him he's going to have a son who is going to be John the Baptist. Uh, In Luke chapter 1, verse 19, Gabriel says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Who they are may not be that significant, but what they're about to do is very significant because they're each given a trumpet. And at this point, we learn that the seventh seal, remember there's the interlude, and then we moved into the seventh seal in verse 1. Now we've just learned that the seventh seal is the opening of the eight or the seven trumpet judgments. I have no idea where eight just came from, but (laughs) the seventh seal judgment is actually the introduction or the the entering in of the seven trumpet judgments, and we're introduced to them for the very first time, and um, then as it begins to unfold in in verse three, uh, not to spend too much time on it, 
it begins to say that this, there's this other angel that, that's there on the scene, and he holds in his hand the censer. The censer, you can think of it as kind of like a, a cup or a, a bowl type of thing, and it held, and this is, this is picturing the Old Testament worship experience in the temple and, and, and the sacrificial system and all that kind of stuff. There was this censer, this bowl thing that held incense, and the incense would be burnt, and the smoke would rise up from the incense, and the smoke rising up would, would typify, it would, it would symbolically picture the prayers of God's people rising up to God, rising up to heaven. And here in Revelation uh, chapter 8, this other angel, here's seven angels are standing there giving their trumpets, they're getting ready to blow these trumpets, and then suddenly this other angel shows up on the scene, and he's got this censer, and in the censer are uh, incense, and the incense represent the prayers of God's people. Let me just stop right here just a second and just say, I just think it's extremely cool as, as we discover, and this is the second time we've come across this, if I'm not mistaken. I just think it's extremely cool how, how, how special the prayers of God's people are treated in heaven. We find that out when we get to the book of Revelation. How many times have, have you or I prayed and, and thought, well, did that, well, where did that go? I mean, I haven't seen anything from that. I'm telling you, for thousands of years, people have been praying. For thousands of years, people have been praying, God, I pray for the day when your righteousness will rule on this earth. I pray for the day when your judgment will come and those who have, who have acted wickedly or wrong will, will come under your judgment and righteousness will reign on, the, on this earth. I pray for the day when your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, which we're instructed to pray that way. And yet it seems like we see the, uh, the world is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And we think, well, what, what good does any of that do? And suddenly we read in Revelation chapter 8 that not a single one of those prayers are wasted. That they're actually being in some way stored up. And they're represented in this censer and in this incense that's rising up before God. And then we find out that this angel takes this censer with the incense that represents the prayers of God's people, and he throws it symbolically. We see this picture of him hurling it back down to the earth, which I believe most, most biblical students believe that that represents the fact that, that God is saying it's time. Now I'm going to answer these prayers, and, they, and the prayers are coming back down to the earth because now God's about to answer all of those prayers. God, may your righteous reign come upon this earth. May injustice be stamped out and iniquity wiped out. And God says, here it comes. I'm getting ready to answer those prayers as the seven angels get ready to blow those trumpets. And then it begins to happen. In verse 6, it says, And the seven angels who had the seven seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And then in verse 7, and and in the verses that follow, I won't read all of them, but in in the verses that begin to follow, they begin to blow those trumpets. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. Uh, It's really kind of unclear whether whether it's actual blood mixed with the fire and and hail or whether it's something that looks like blood. I I can't say that's totally clear, but I'll, I'll say this. Since these are supernatural events that we're talking about from a supernatural God, I have no problem in in seeing it as actual literal blood that comes down. And it struck me this morning, I hadn't thought about this before, it struck me this morning how ironic it is that how prominent the idea of blood seems to be in the judgment of man. 
here in these latter days and these judgments that are poured out, how prominent blood seems to be. That strikes me because, because of how essential blood is for the salvation of man, which, which we will demonstrate by faith today and by partaking of the bread and the cup that represents the blood that was shed, the body that was broken. But I have no problem with seeing it as actual literal blood. The hail and, and the fire take care of a third of the trees of the earth. The, the Greek word that is used usually refers to fruit trees, um, which obviously would be a food source, but it more than likely and almost certainly does just represents trees in general. A third of the total of them destroyed, wiped out. The, the grass is, is burnt up, wiped out, which obviously would affect the, the, the food source for livestock and, and even for, for wild animals and and things like that. A third wiped out. Uh, these meteors or pieces of stars or whatever they are, I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with leaving that in the hands of God. Whatever they are, uh, come down and, and destroy a third of the, of the oceans of the earth. Whether that means a particular part of, whether it's, you know, it's most of the Atlantic or whether it's, you know, this ocean here and this, I, I don't know. I, I I'll just leave that up to God and how he decides to do. What I know is he says a third of the oceans will be destroyed. And if you think about it, if a third of the, of the life in the sea is also destroyed at that time, then, then almost certainly the, the oceans would become pretty bloody as a result of the death of billions, I guess, fish and, and everything else that teems in the waters of the ocean. And, and a third of the fresh water is is destroyed the rivers the underground wells i don't i don't know i just leave that up to god i just know the word wormwood essentially just means undrinkable and so imagine all of this stuff happening all of this all of this going on you know one of the things that has struck me um in my study of this book of revelation during this series one of the things that has struck me is is how much more prominent the grace of God is in this book than I had ever realized or thought about before. Now, we think of the book of Revelation, we usually think of, you know, wrath of God, judgment of God, apocalypse, all that kind of stuff, and certainly it is. But all through it, we keep seeing the grace of God showing up. All through it. Think about it. We started this thing back with the seven letters to the seven churches. What was the purpose in that? Was it not to draw the churches and the believers that make up those churches? Was it not to draw them back to where God wanted them to be because they'd begun to drift off for this reason or that reason? We looked at all those different reasons that they'd begun to, to just drift off in sin. And do you know if you're a child of God, God loves you too much to leave you in a condition of sinfulness or rebellion against, against him? And the whole purpose was to draw us back to where God desires for us to be. It's his grace. We just, it's just his grace. This increasing intensity of the judgments. Why? Why, why increase the, the judgments? Intensity? Why not just get it all over at one time? Just whoosh. Because it gives people time to respond. Because even in the midst of this, this apocalyptic event where, where hundreds of millions of people are dying, God is still desiring to see people come into a relationship with him and, and trust him as their Lord and, as, his, as their Lord and Savior. The 144,000. Why send them out? To preach the gospel because God wants people to come into relationship with him. His grace. It's just his grace. We see it all over this book. 
Much more than I had ever thought about before. And so we see it even in the midst of all that's going on. His grace is being poured out. God is being patient and desiring to see people come into relationship with him. And so these nature judgments come that we've just read about. Now, uh, maybe somebody's sitting out there and you're thinking, well, why, why does this have to ha- happen to nature? I mean, basically, these, these are what are called the nature judgments. They, I mean, obviously, it can affect mankind in a serious way, but, but the judgments themselves fall on nature, on, on the earth, on the stars, on the, on the moon, on, on the rivers, on the oceans. All, why, why does that happen? If man is the center, if man is the one that has blown, messed it up, mankind, why does all this stuff have to happen uh, to the earth? Well, I would remind you of, of three things. One, it's, a, it's again, it's a picture of God's grace being extended. As he, as he brings these nature judgments first to give people time to see the, the power of God and to say, oh my goodness, we better get our act together. This, this guy really is God and bend their knee to him. So it, it gives people, it's his grace still extended. Second, throughout history, man has chosen to worship the creation, rather than the creator. We, we see that very clearly in Romans chapter 1. And we've looked at Romans chapter 1, interestingly enough, several times in this study of the book of Revelation. R- Romans chapter 1 tells us that, that man often chooses to worship the creation rather than the creator. And by sending these judgments on the creation, God is showing m- mankind on the earth at that time that God is in control. Not, not idols made of wood or stone. Not you know, Mother Nature or Mother Earth, not the nature gods, but Jehovah God is in control. So part of the reason for the, these, these nature judgments may be to remind people that, that God is the one that's worthy of worship. And then the third reason that you may find that these nature judgments come first with the trumpets is because, as we're going to learn when we get to the end of this book of Revelation... God's going to remake the whole thing anyway. God's going to redo it all. And so, so he's, he's, going to, he's going to tear it down to get it to where he, he wants to be. And in 2 Peter, uh, we find this passage of Scripture. It says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Notice Peter's saying that even to his generation, even 2,000 years ago. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a what? Say it. New heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Think of it this way. I don't know if you've ever seen this either on TV or live in person. If you've ever seen a potter at work uh, creating a a bowl or a, a pitcher or a cup or something like that, if you've ever seen it, the potter has this lump of clay on the potter's wheel, and as as he or she begins to shape this 
uh, piece of pottery, if you've ever, uh, ever been standing there, you may say, see this thing begin to take shape and it begins to look like a bowl. And, and to me, it's looking like, man, that thing's looking pretty good. I, it, 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 he must almost be finished with it. And just when you think that he is finished with it, he just, he just takes it all back down again and, and begins to reshape it. Why? Because the potter knows that knows the imperfections. The potter knows the impurities. The potter knows what he has in his mind as to what this thing is going to look like. And it's not there yet. He's not finished. The potter's not finished with his creation. God is not finished with his creation. And in his timing, he's going to tear it down, break it down, and make it again into what in his mind he knows it can and should be. In his mind, what will be the perfection of his creation, what he intended for it to be be in the beginning before sin marred it in the first place. God's going to do this work. So these nature judgments comes, and it even includes, as I mentioned, it even includes the, the sun and the moon and the stars. Did you know Job chapter 9, verse 9 and 10 tells us that God has every one of his stars both numbered and named? That's amazing to me. Where we were on vacation uh, last week, it was, we were up high and it was very dark. And uh, it, it was just, uh, I love looking at the stars. And, it was, and it's just mind-boggling to me to think of, of the omniscience and the omnipotence of God that Job says he knows every one of them. Knows every one of them by name. Well, since he created every one of them, knows every one of them, then God has full authority to, to diminish them in whatever extent he wants, whether, whether it's the amount of time that they shine or the intensity or, or whatever it is. One thing is clear, it will have almost an immediate effect on the climate of this earth. All of this takes place as these, these nature judgments are poured out. And then verse 13 says this. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying, and I want you to listen to what it says. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Why? Woe, woe, woe because of all that's happened to them with these first judgments that are, that are being poured out? No. No. Woe, woe, woe for what's about to happen. Woe, woe, woe for the three angels that haven't even blown their trumpets yet. Do you understand what that passage of Scripture is saying in verse 13? That as bad as this is, as bad as a third of everything getting wiped out and all the effects it will have, this eagle is shouting out, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is just, this was the easy stuff. Woe to you living on the earth for the three angels who are about to blow their trumpets. Can you begin, listen, listen. In reading this, and if you've been with us for this series as we've moved into these judgments, but in reading this even today, in listening to this description, listen to me. Can you begin to get some sense of an idea of how absolutely abhorrent sin is to a holy God? Do you begin to understand at just how vile sin is to holy God? And not just the big sins that you can name off. But any sin that violates God's will and, and righteousness for our lives. The BP squared, the, the big picture biblical principle for Revelation chapter 8 is, is very simply this. The first four trumpet judgments will bring destruction to one-third of the creation. The first four tr- trumpet judgments will bring destruction to one-third of the creation. 
one-third of the entire creation. Now, keep in mind, this is already after. After the sealed judgments, after the wars and famines and disease and hundreds of millions who will perish during the early days of the tribulation period, all of that is before this and a third of, of all of the creation is destroyed. Do you have any idea how violently God hates sin? And does it bring conviction into your spirit and your heart about even the, the little things that I excuse away in my life? Oh, well, that's, that's not that big a deal. And yet it is unpleasing to my God and what he would desire for my life. Many, uh, many years ago, uh, there was a, a sermon preached by a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And the title of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And some of you may have heard about the sermon. I mean, we're talking middle 18th century, 1740-ish, somewhere there. I forget the exact date. So a long, long time ago. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It is reported that when Edwards stood that day and read his sermon, because I understand he was so uh, nearsighted or farsighted, whichever one it is, that he actually had to hold this paper up. You couldn't even see his face. And he read his sermon, as I understand, in a very monotone way, as it was reported. But it is reported that as he read his sermon that day, the Spirit of God gripped the people gathered in that church in such a way as they had never experienced before. As a matter of fact, as he, as he read his sermon, as the sermon continued, as the story goes, that there began to be whimpering, that you could begin to hear some whimpering and, and crying that, that soon turned into open wailing and moaning within the church. And they began to hear uh, people cry out, hold, hold, Brother Edwards, stop. We, we can't take anymore. As the witnesses claim that they literally felt like they were going to fall into hell at any second, that the, that the very floor of the church was going to open up and swallow them into the, into the depths of hell. As a matter of fact, eyewitnesses swear that as he was preaching the sermon that day, they could literally feel the heels of their boots begin to burn. That one sermon ignited what became known as the first great evangelical awakening, where tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people came into relationship with Jesus Christ because of that one single Sunday event. And I want to read to you an excerpt from the sermon this morning because no matter where you are or think you are in your relationship with God, I want you to hear this today. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. 
And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus all you that never passed under the great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a state of new and before altogether unexperienced light and life, you are in the hands of an angry God. However you may have reformed your life in many things and may have had religious affections and may keep a form of religion in your families and closets and in the house of God, it is nothing but his mere pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. However unconvinced you may, be, may now be of the truth of what you hear, by and by you will be fully convinced of it. If in the course of these weeks that we are walking through the judgments of God, you find yourself uneasy or uncomfortable with this picture of God, this God of wrath and this God of judgment, if in some way you find yourself uneasy and uncomfortable with, with this, if, if you or the culture around us says, that doesn't look like the God that, that I want to, to, to know, then I would remind you, that it's your idea of God that needs to change, not God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 says this. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God if you are not a child of God. If you've not been born again of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a terrifying thing, but it is not yet too late to fall into the arms of a loving God who of his own will and accord allowed his son to come and to be the payment for your sins. To anyone who would, who would bow their knee and bend their will and believe in their heart that Christ's redeeming work on the cross was sufficient for them. And if you're here and by the grace of God and the willingness of your heart, you would say, how do I do that? How do I know for certain that Christ is in me and, and that, that I have forgiveness and that I have eternal life and redemption? How do, I, how do I know that? It's very simple. All you need to do is take up responsibility of your sin. Recognize that you're a sinner. Confess before God that you have violated his laws and you've lived your life according to your will and not his. You've got to own up. You've got to fess up. You have to take up responsibility of your sin. Second, take up by faith the blood of Christ as payment for your sin. Not by works which you have done, not by being a good person, not by going to church, not by giving enough money, but purely by, the, by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. You weren't even there. It was 2,000 years ago. It was an event that, that you can't even physically see. But by faith, you say, I, I believe it. I believe it, and I'm appropriating it to my life because I know I'm a sinner, and I believe that Christ is the only way to redeem me. Redeem me, take it up. And third, take up the life that he offers to you to follow after him. It's not, it's not just, well, I prayed this neat little prayer and now I can go out of here and live my life any way I want because I'm okay because I believe in Jesus. No, that, that's not what salvation is. It's taking up the life that he offers to you in exchange for the life you've chosen for yourself. Oh, it's, 
It's tough. The things of the world, the, the, the allures and, and the things of my flesh pull at me and, and want me to do what I want to do. And Christ says, you've you got to come my way, my child. You have to come through the cross. You have to let all that go. You have to confess it, recognize that it's not my plan for your life, and you have to follow me. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior. But it is a wonderful thing to live in the reality of knowing he's your Lord and Savior when you've given your life to him. It's a pretty terrifying scene, isn't it? The destruction that is going to come upon the earth during the time of the tribulation period is almost incomprehensible. But it shows us God's holiness and the absolute certainty of his judgment of sin. But through it all, we again see God's grace. Of course, the time to turn to him is now before it's too late. And if you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, we encourage you to do just that. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.